Hello everyone. It's, um, it's so good to be with you here today. And can I just uh, begin by reiterating that welcome? So if you are new to Grace Church, if it's your first time here, whether you call yourself a Christian or not, it's wonderful to have you here with us this morning. Um, we are continuing our Exodus series. We've come to a pivotal part, so uh, we're up to Exodus 20, and um, Exodus is, uh, the structure of it is broken down into two parts. So the first 19 chapters are all about the story of uh, the people of God being rescued from Egypt, going through the wilderness, and we've now got to Mount Sinai, and then from Exodus 20 onwards, we, uh, we uh, get something called the Sinai Covenant, which is an expression of God's relationship to his people and their relationship with him. Exodus gets the Sinai Covenant started, but it doesn't actually get finished right until the end of Leviticus. And we know this because at the end of Leviticus, there are these helpful words. It says, these are the commands the Lord gave to Moses on Mount Sinai for the Israelites. When I found out I was going to be preaching on the Ten Commandments, I was fully ready to go with a, with a sort of sense of uh, the law and the gospel of grace and contextualizing it into uh, us, the society we live in today, live in today. But as I was preparing and praying, I felt such a sense uh, that God wanted us to um, to hear about one of the commandments in particular. And, um, and I think there's something that God's going to really bless us as we unpack his scriptures and focus in on one of them. So I'm going to focus in on one. That means that I've messed up JP's preach schedule and we're going to have to come back to the Ten Commandments and do a proper job of it in a few <laughs> weeks' time. Um, so that's what we will do. But I'm going to be focusing in on one. Um, however, it is a good... Uh, time for a slight change of tack, because um, in the second half of Exodus, we're going to be handling the passages a little bit more thematically, uh, because if we were to go in the same pace that we did in the first half, because of the content, the complexity, and the structure, we would literally be here till Christmas. So you can all breathe a sigh of relief. We'll still be going broadly chronologically, but we will, um, we'll, we'll, we'll do it more in themes. Okay, so let's read the passage. Even though I'm only going to focus on one, um, I'm still going to read the whole of the Ten Commandments. So here we go. We're reading from Exodus 20, and we're reading 1 to 17. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. That's the intro. Now we get to the commandments. Number one, you shall have no other gods before me, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any, of any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth below or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes him in vain. 
And just in case you started to tune out, you need to focus now, because this is the one we're doing. Commandment 4, and it says this. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. Watch out for him. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that's in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honour your father and your mother, for your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God has given you. Who wanted it to be that one? Anyone? (laughs) Um, And then it says, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbour. And finally, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkeys or anything that is your neighbor's. What if I was to tell you that if you were to put into practice what I'm going to say to you today, you will encounter God in ways that you have never imagined you will have those Moses burning bush moments where you uh, get such a sense of God's calling upon your life. What if I was to say that to you? What would you say? Bring it on. We had a hallelujah at the nine and that was about it. So we've got to bring it on. You'd say, tell me more, Ben. In fact, I want you all to say that. So after three, one, two, three. Tell me more, Ben. Well, I'm going to. Stop interrupting me, all right? (laughs) This is, this is really important today. And so I also want to give you total permission. Many of you don't need it, but total permission just to um, quote me back to myself in the future as, um, as I unpack some stuff, because it's something that we all need to hear. Okay, quick background or structure of the Ten Commandments. The first four, uh, totally God-focused. It, it describes our relationship with God and um, it's, it's about showing covenant loyalty directly to him. And then the last six, they hand on the command to love your neighbor as yourself. Or as Jesus explained it in, the, uh, in, in Matthew in the gospel, he says, do unto others as you want to have done to yourself. So the first four are God-focused, love God. The next six are people-focused, love each other. Okay, and the Sabbath obviously fits in with the first four, loving God. But here's the thing, and I don't know if this stood out to you as, as I just read it through. Isn't it incredible how many words God gives to this Sabbath commandment? Like, it's, it's long, isn't it? It's, um, and that obviously doesn't mean it's more important than not murdering or not stealing, but it's, it's in the Ten Commandments, God's used a lot of words to describe it. Something that stood out to me is this is something we should take so seriously. And, um, and, and also, my suggestion on this is it's actually, in our culture, the most countercultural of our Ten Commandments. So you might say, 
um, honour your mother and father is something that is, is equally countercultural. But I think society at least goes, okay, we don't do that, but we want to be able to do that. Whereas the Sabbath, people feel like they've just chucked it out altogether. So why is our culture so anti-Sabbath? We end up cramming our lives full of more and more stuff, don't we? It's absolutely uh, ridiculous. I find myself, um, you know, when I'm waiting for someone for a few minutes, maybe I'm in a coffee shop or something like that. What do I do? I don't look around and enjoy my own thoughts and um, maybe get a little bit bored. Do you remember boredom? That was a, a thing of the past, isn't it? I get out of this, and then I flick it on. It's nice. It now recognizes my face, you know, like an old friend. And um, I flick to BBC News. I'll read a few articles there, maybe BBC Sport. I then love a local news story, so I'll go to Nottingham Post, and uh, I'll look to my Google News Feed. What's that telling me now? It's telling me where can electric scooters be ridden in the UK. I don't know why. Arsenal Brighton, Forest Bolton... Yeah, there's a, there's a few little bits and bobs there. So I'll read a few of those, and I might check social media accounts, although I'm not really much of a social media person. But essentially, I just fill my brain with stuff. And even more so, it gets ridiculous when maybe Emily and I are watching a TV program in an evening, and Emily goes out the room literally for 20 seconds to pour herself a glass of water. We pause the TV. What do I do? Get my phone out. Or uh, press exit on the TV and flip to another channel because I've got to fill my brain with something. When, as a society, did we lack the ability to sit still? You know, I can see a lot of you fidgeting now. <laughs> when do we, as a society, lack the ability to sit still? It feels like the whole world is vying for our attention, doesn't it? And to an extent, that's actually true. You know, we have media companies, social media, they're all vying for our attention. They're all wanting us to, to turn to their sites. And then what they do is they, they drive us from one compelling news story to another, to another, to another. And the problem with this is that it's not just the small amounts of time that we're cramming. We're also cramming our days. Days off. Days off are not days off, are they? They're, they're our to-do list doing day, you know, where we uh, try and run from one thing to another. If you've got family, um, small kids, you might be going from party to party. That's what we spend our time doing with our, with our three kids and sitting in a hall somewhere. And... Um, what, what seems to happen is you actually see more and more the similarities between the people of God in slavery in Egypt and ourselves, where we have a seven-day-a-week work ethos where what we're measured on is our performance and our progress. It's those two things. And being busy is seen as being a badge of honor, isn't it? You know, it, it's basically shorthand for... Look at me. I'm important. You know, I'm busy. What you, I'm so busy. Uh, we had some friends around on Tuesday, and um, one of the first things we ended up saying to one another was we ended up comparing our days half-jokingly with how many meetings did you have today? And this particular guy had eight meetings in an afternoon, which beat me. So that was a, that was a shame. But, um, <laughs> but we, we were joking, 
but only sort of. It was, it, was a, it was a genuine discussion. And the problem is, being busy is detrimental to us at soul level. It's actually the greatest enemy of our spiritual life. We're good at work and play, but are we good at rest and worship? We're good at work and play, but are we good at rest and worship? I, I came across um, a poem by a guy called Ted Loder, and this is an excerpt from him, and it says this. Holy one, there's something I wanted to tell you, but there have been errands to run, bills to pay, meetings to attend, washing to do, and I forgot what I wanted to say to you and forget about what I am or why. Does that resonate in any way? It does for me. In, a, in another book, I was reading about a pastoral conversation, um, and it was going backwards and forwards. But essentially, the crux of what this person wanted to say to God was, God, I miss you. Can you relate? Life is insanely busy, and we end up doing more and more with less time. And let me tell you this now, church, this is not sustainable. Ultimately, what it does is it actually wrecks our relationship with God. He's sort of pushed out of our life. And as we see from the first four commandments, they're all about loving God, and they're about having relationship with him. So something's got to give. But if, as if that wasn't bad enough, not only does it wreck our relationship with God, it also wrecks um, our own health, both from an emotional and a physical perspective. You know, we end up beaten up, dangerously tired. We end up stressed, you know, not able to take care of ourselves. And then when we're hurt by people, and, you know, whether it's intentional or not, we're all, we all have a tendency to hurt people, whether we want to or not. What happens is we don't take time for those relationships to heal and to be restored. And then what does that leave us? It leaves us brittle and unable to take criticism. We don't have time. We don't leave ourselves with time to reflect on who we are in the eyes of God. The, uh, the question early Wesleyan bands of Christ followers would ask each other whenever they came together was, how is it with your soul? So that's the question I'm asking you all today. How is it with your soul? Asking this question is not narcissistic navel-gazing. It's rather this type of attentiveness. It helps us stay on the path that God's got for us. Stay walking on the path. It, it helps us to be able to say an ever-deepening yes to what God's asking us to do and responding to him. But we need time to answer this question. And currently, for most of us, we don't have time, do we? We don't have any space. So, I've painted the picture, and hopefully it resonates with you. We know we have a problem with busyness. Society's expectations stop us from hearing and having the relationship with God that he intended for us in the first place. Let's spend a few minutes 
actually looking at that relationship. What does relationship with God look like? We're going to turn back a chapter to Exodus 19, and there's a beautiful verse and a half which describes it perfectly. Exodus 19 verse 4 says this. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' winds and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among the peoples. That's the story of redemption in a nutshell. What God does with us is he brings us out of our slavery. He brought the people of God out of their slavery. And where did he bring them? He brought them into relationship with him. And then what did he do then? He didn't leave, leave them in that place. He did what any good parent does, any good father does, and he gave them rules to live by in a way that's both honoring to him and in a way that helps us to live with the joy that he intended for us. I brought you to myself. Now here is a way of life. That's the redemption story. And you see that over and over and over again in the Bible. He's not afraid of repeating himself. I mean, he repeats it one chapter later in, uh, in Exodus 20, what we just read. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. I am the Lord your God. I want relationship with you. Why did he do this? Because God wants, relation, he wants us for relationship. That's what we see in Exodus. And that's what we see when we look at Jesus on the cross, isn't it? You know, how do we relate our story to the people of, the, 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 uh, people of God in Egypt? How do we relate to them? Well, like them, we were slaves. This time we were slaves to our sin. We were unable to break free of the bondage that we'd found ourselves in. And sometimes that's obvious. Sometimes it's obvious addictions or mess that we end up of our own making. Sometimes it's just us wanting to do our own thing, us feeling like we're in control of our own lives. You know, I did it my way. So Jesus came and he made a way for us to come into relationship with him. And that's what most of us can testify to today. If you can testify to that, come on, I want to hear a little bit of noise. Give us a yeah, give us an amen, give us a I testify. We had a few fist pumps, come on. It's, it's true. This is, most of us in the room can testify to this truth today. Jesus came to fulfill the whole law, and he also came to fulfill the Sabbath. Now, Sabbath, the actual word itself, is an English reflex for the common Hebrew word sabbat, which means to rest or to stop or to cease from work. So that's what Sabbath means. And the origin of Sabbath goes back to creation. I mean, and again, in Exodus 20, there's a reference right back, isn't it? In, in, uh, so it says from verse 11, four, in six days the Lord made heaven and earth the sea, and all that is in them. And he rested on the seventh day. Why on earth did the all-powerful creator of the universe rest on the seventh day? Was he tired? What, what was he doing? 
Well, he did it. He simply stopped what he was doing and ceased from his labors because God was establishing the principle of Sabbath day rest for his people. Um, The Israelites, we read in the story of Exodus and beyond, they are constantly laboring, trying to get themselves acceptable to God. So this includes trying to obey all the do's and don'ts that we read about the Ten Commandments, the Levitical laws. And of course, they can't, they can't meet those expectations. But God, in his grace, because he's a loving father, he provides a way through a system of sacrifices for them to be able to get back into relationship with him and to restore fellowship with them. But these sacrifices, who do they point to? They obviously point to Jesus, the ultimate sacrifice, who made a way for us on, when he died on a cross. It says in Hebrews 10, verse 12, we read, When Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. So God, Jesus, after pouring himself out on a cross, what did he do? He rested. He sat down at the right hand of God, and he ceased from his labor of atonement, of making us, connecting us back in with him. And do you know why he ceased? Because it's the ultimate sacrifice, it's a highlight, it's to highlight the fact that there's nothing more that needs to be done ever. It's finished. Our salvation is secure because of what happened on the cross. We no longer need to keep the law and labor in the same way that these people did because we're justified in the sight of God. Jesus was sent so that we might rest in God and in what he's provided. So I could see some of you possibly tuning out there. It's, it's the gospel. We absolutely love it here at Grace Church, and we hear it every single week, don't we? We hear, we hear this, and it's so easy to take it for granted. So I know that most of you know this to be the truth, but do you live like you know it's the case, that he's done it all, that you don't need to uh, strive and slave away in the same way that you once did? Do you... You really believe that on the basis of your relationship with God, there's nothing that you need to do anymore. For, for those of you who know me and have been around here for a, for a little bit, I've had a um, bizarre few months. Um, the nuts and bolts of it were that I fell over <laughs> and um, whilst playing cricket, it was an extreme game of cricket with a nine-year-old and a seven-year-old, and uh, fell over on a hard surface and broke my wrist. And so... I've got a nice scar to uh, following on from the operation. And, you know, I had a period of enforced rest. And a great friend of mine, um, a guy called Matt Parfit, who uh, leads uh, the Radiant Cleaners business that we've set up to support those in long-term unemployment, he would greatly told my wife, quoted Psalm 23. And uh, in particular, he was like, you know, it says in Psalm 23, he makes you lie down he makes you lie down in green pastures beside still waters. And that's genuinely what it feels like God's done um, for me over a period of time. And I've been forced to spend lots of time with him. And it's been absolutely incredible. And um, alongside this and feeling out of control with my hands, there's also been a ton of other stuff that's kind of gone wrong uh, in a human sense. Um, our car broke down 
Um, it's been to the garage at least five times, potentially six or seven times, uh, with some stuff going off. And um, I, I sold a house that I'd had since 2004, and that was taking an absolute age to go through. And what God was highlighting to me is some of my beliefs about myself, some a sense that, um, you know, I can get stuff fixed. You know, I can, I can make stuff happen. When, and when actually I just felt totally out of control. And he just highlighted to, to me that I'm not in control, but he is. He's in control. Everything doesn't depend on me, what I do day by day. So why do I so often spend my life pretending that it does? You know, that's the belief that I was acting out. What beliefs do you end up acting out on a day-to-day -day basis? We're not in control, but he is, and he's a good dad. Okay, so we have so far looked at what's wrong with our culture around rest, reflection, and making space to hear from God. We've reminded ourselves of the story of redemption, and that's one of him bringing uh, us into relationship with him, and then God giving us rules for life so that we can live life to the full. But actually, the gospel is complete. Our salvation is finished. We don't need to do anything else. So we're going to spend the remainder of our time looking at actually defining what a Sabbath is and making it work for us all. The Sabbath is a weekly reminder of the gospel of grace. Okay? It's a reminder that God is a good God okay, who wants relationship with his people. He wants relationship with you, with you. And so what we're to do is we're to enjoy relationship with him, we're to rest, and we're to worship. So if uh, you, again, tuned out slightly, focus in on this. If you take away one thing from today, I want you to know that the Sabbath is about rest and worship. Rest and worship. Can we all say rest and worship? Fabulous. Some of you are looking so restful right now. That's perfect. <laughs> um, so this is a really helpful matrix for you to, uh, to look at your Sabbath day, to look at whether it's successful or not. If something helps you to rest and worship, it's good, and you should fill your day with it. So it's often not binging on bot sets as much as we like doing that. Because I don't know about you, but that doesn't necessarily help me to worship God. I might just be, you know, semi-comatose on a sofa, but I'm not worshipping God. For, um, for me, it's often enjoying God's creation, spending time out and about. I spend a lot of time in an office, so it's getting time away. So the Sabbath is not about having one um, particular day of the week but it's about a regular, weekly, 24-hour period that works for you where you can rest and worship. It's a rhythm of life. Okay, so Emily and I, we have, uh, we have time on a Friday, so we, uh, our kids are all at uh, school age, and so we send them off to school, and then we pray, and we worship God for a while, and we spend time with each other, and then we'll head out somewhere for lunch, maybe. We'll, we're supposed to enjoy God's good creation, so we're supposed to enjoy each other, and we're supposed to enjoy good food. And as long as it's worshipful, that's great. 
So that's what we do. We enjoy good food. Had a steak sandwich on our last Sabbath, which was lovely. I enjoyed it. <laughs> it, it genuinely brought me to worship. It's, um, <laughs> yeah, I won't dwell on that. Let's move on. Come on, Ben. Okay. Um, so what I find is that when we have time where we're not rushing around, I wake up to the God who's been with me all week, but I haven't always been aware of his power and his presence. And as I do these things, it feels like I get my soul back. And Jesus is healing my body and my soul. One of the most fascinating, or a fascinating element of the gospel stories um, is that when you look at Jesus' miracles, do you know what day of the week he does most of his healings on? It's the Sabbath. And I think he, he, it, he's done that for a reason. It's our Sabbath. If we spend unrushed time with him, that's the time where he heals us. Physically, emotionally, as we spend the time worshipping him. This is wonderful, but it takes commitment. And you'll have all sorts of voices in your head going, look, how can I do this? And you're, you're going to have to work that out for yourself because we all, you know your life better than, uh, than I know your life. But it's so important. We need to take this seriously. And in doing so, it means that life is lived to the full. And it means that we slow down enough to actually enjoy our lives. And, it, and the wonderful news is as well, if we're spending time with God, we're more likely to hear from him the path that he has for us, and then we're able to step into it. So that's the personal encouragement for you to carve out a 24-hour period, uh, period of time weekly to enjoy God's presence and power. And then what are you going to do on that? Rest and worship, you're right. <laughs> Great. As a church, and this is finally before we bring the band up in a moment, we're taking this command seriously as well and been utterly convinced of it and um, convicted that we need to change some things in our scheduling here. So we run our calendars September to September, calendar year, um, academic year, and when we look at the next year, we are going to do all we can to be more efficient with uh, the uh, times during the week so that um, we are not over-scheduling you all with event after event after event. And that will give you more time to personally spend time with God and to spend time with people who don't yet know Jesus. Okay? Let's have the band up. Let's come back to that question that the early Wesleyan bands of Jesus followers asked themselves. How is it with your soul? That's the question we're going to focus on right now, okay? And we're not going to stand up and, and sing a song, actually, this time. We're going to let Chris's dulcet tones sing over us. And I, I want you to reflect on a, on a few facets of the question, how is it with your soul? So the first element is, do you even have space in your life to reflect and regularly ask that question? Or is God asking you today to make space? That could be you. Another, another point is, is your soul at peace knowing Christ has done it all? Christ has done it all. You do not have to do a thing. 
Or is your identity linked in with your own achievements? God might be prompting, prompting you in that area. Finally, do you know Jesus? If not, are you feeling a sense of stirring in your, in your soul today that you want to make a commitment? What we'll do is we'll just have our eyes shut and we'll, um, we'll just see what God wants to say to you. And I might say a few more words in a minute or two.